said, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be camping out in verses 1 through 6. We're in week 12 of our 1 Peter series. It's going to take us through right up until about the week before Christmas. Um, one of the dangers that comes anytime you hear God's Word preached is this idea that we hear it and then we walk away thinking, hmm, well, that's an interesting perspective. Let me think about that. Or, uh, you know, that sounds like good advice. You know, maybe I'll consider that down the road. Um, and, and where our struggle comes in with that is that Scripture, uh, scripture is not like, you know, cracking open fortune cookies at Peking right across the street. Um, it's not listening to your grandpa go on and on about what he would do if he was in your shoes. That's not what the words of the Lord are meant, the effect that they're meant to have on our lives. And as we've been going through First Peter the past 11 weeks, Peter is not making suggestions to us. And it really, that really stuck out to me this week as I was struggling in this text. Do you guys know like when I go through this text and I'm preparing these things like it's a struggle? I don't just open it and go, oh yeah, I, I know exactly what I'm going to say. It's been, what, babe, three minutes now? I'm bad. I, I feel like I'm, I've overprepped now. No, I mean, like, I struggle with the text. This text was a struggle. And one of the things that came over me was like, man, we can just read these words like we're reading like a manual for how to fix our washer. If you're one of those dudes that fixes your washer, I'm not. I hire those things out. But I'm just saying, like, we can read these words and they can just bounce off of us and we can just sort of approach God's word like it's just a nice set of rules that when we decide that we want to follow them when it's convenient for us, then we'll apply to our lives. And yet, Peter is not making suggestions. He was not making suggestions to the men and women in the churches that he wrote to who were, again, dispersed all over Asia. And it's not suggestions for us either. And part of that is that God's Word comes with a stamp of urgency for us because, man, again, it's not a how-to manual. It's also not a menu for us. It's not, you know, it's not the Food Channel's 10 steps to a juicier turkey this Thanksgiving. You know, that, that's not what God's Word is. These are words of divine origin, right? Do we believe that? That these are words of divine origin that speak to the majesty and the grace and the mercy and the love that the creator of the universe has for his fallen creation? Because that's what these words are. And what we learn by reading God's Word is that we know God's will. And God's will, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning, God's will is that our minds be conformed to Christ as we die to our sin while fixing our eyes on our future life with God. Now, you know, you know the holidays are upon us, right? The holidays are upon us, and the goal that we all have, which, let's just be honest, defies logic, is to eat as much delicious food as possible without gaining one single solitary pound, right? I mean, somehow, like somehow we roll into the holidays thinking like food is going to be like much kinder to us this holiday season, don't we? Like that food will be different and won't punish us for devouring so much of it. Because again, the rub is that we want to eat all the food, but we also still want our clothes to fit, right? I mean, our dream is for the smallest size clothing to conform to our body. Like, that's the dream. Without conforming our bodies to what will actually make that possible. Like, it just defies, like, I think that, like, every year. Like, I have no plans to eat less this year. But I have a lot of plans 
to like fit into that 32. I just threw it out there. That's what I am, 32. That's what it is, right? We want clothes and we want magic food every year, which would truly make it the most wonderful time of the year, if we're honest. Um, But what conforms us to Christ in the same way uh, is Christ's righteousness. What conforms us to Christ is His righteousness. It's what clothes us and provides us the power to cease from sin so that sin is something that we once walked in. And so Peter's been talking a lot about ceasing from sin, hasn't he? He's been talking a lot about suffering. And once again, he he brings us back. He repeats himself in, in many ways. He brings us back to the central truth that we become like Christ by suffering like Christ. And it's how our faith goes from the theoretical to the real. And you guys have, you guys have understood that in your own lives. I don't know if you've come out of a painful season, if you are in a painful season, or if you see something on the horizon that maybe has you concerned, right? Some of us have have really, really understood the depths of suffering. And we've also understood that it was in those moments, it was in those seasons that God did something to us to draw us closer to the truths that we just sort of throw out there and we, we claim to believe, right? And so today, just what we're going to see as we go through six verses is that God, again, He has called us to something that comes at a cost but will ultimately bring us comfort because that is the God that we serve. We serve a God who calls. We serve a God who calls us that will cost us something, but He ultimately is always there to comfort us in our affliction, knowing what the cost will be because He ordains the cost. It's tough stuff for us to wrestle through. Let's just dive right in. Verse 1, follow along with me. 1 Peter 4, 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's just stop right there for a second because the first thing Peter brings us to is this idea of arming ourselves. Arming ourselves. If you've ever been around something dead, all right, there's a very distinct odor. I mean, up to this point, I've never, I've never met anyone who's claimed to like the smell of death, right? I mean, if you go to Bueller's to buy some air freshener, they don't have like a death scent next to like the strawberry and like the powder fresh, right? Nobody offers that. Nobody wants that. And in a similar way, Peter's talking about the way that Christ suffered, the way he died, the way he suffered for us in the flesh by dying so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. So Christ suffered in the flesh as a man to break the sting, to break the victory, to break the very power that death has of both consuming us for all eternity and corrupting us as we live our lives for him or as we attempt to live our lives for him. And so what Peter's doing is he's instructing his readers to arm themselves with this way of thinking. Well, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we arm ourselves the way of thinking like Christ with assuming the mindset of Christ? Well, we just have to ask, how do we know what anyone thinks until they actually speak? 
Um, you know, I mean, last time I checked, mind reading was something that they're just still trying to invent, right? Like, we're not there yet. We don't, we don't have those kind of mechanisms. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ by mining the words of Christ. That's how we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, by actually diving into the words that he wrote for us to understand his mind. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You realize he doesn't flip that? He doesn't say, you know, make no provision for the flesh, don't gratify the desires, and then after you've gotten to that place, put on the mind of Christ. No, he precursors it by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. By knowing Christ who suffered in the flesh as a man, God will conform us to Christ and break the power of sin over us through suffering of our own. And this is what Peter says is how we cease from sinning. If you look there in verse 1, now ceasing from sin, all right, it's a strange line. Ceasing from sin doesn't mean we reach some utopian state of sinless perfection on this earth. That's not what it talks about. In fact, just do a quick survey of everything you thought, said, and did over the past 24 hours, and you'll be reminded of how true that is, right? There is no sinless perfection that anybody is attaining on this earth. But to cease from sin, what Peter's saying here is it means living a life where you progressively sin less while having an increased desire to please God out of a grateful, heartbreaking love for Him. And so what God does is He uses, as we've seen all the way through this book, He uses suffering in our life to break the power of sin over our lives by revealing the power we have through the Holy Spirit to resist sin. So the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead has the power to help you and me overcome those nagging sins in our lives. Do you, guys, do you guys know that? Do you realize that? Have you sort of faced that, that truth? If you're somebody who does follow Christ, do you know that everyone who comes to faith in Christ receives the power of the Holy Spirit to resist those human passions of which Peter is talking about and getting ready to, uh, to flesh out a little bit for us? No pun intended there. John 8, 21 says this. You guys are quiet today. Help me a little bit. Uh, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, this is what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Can we just say that, right? We just gloss over that. I am the light of the world. And this is what he says. That's how he follows up that statement. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that light of life, it's the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit to progressively pull us away from those human passions that used to be representative of our lives so that now we will not walk in darkness. And what God does is uses suffering as his method to deliver you from that darkness, from the darkness of that ongoing sin. And if you're a rational person, and some of you are today, you're going to ask the question, isn't there another method I mean, is there, you know what I mean? Is there another method? And the answer is, you mean besides how he made his own son suffer so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness? Because none of you are getting super pumped right now about this when we start talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And if you're like me, you're wrestling through fear when you read passages like this. And maybe even thinking that God is playing a little unfair because that just hits us a little off 
that sort of tilts us. So listen, whenever, whenever we think God is less loving, less fair, or less kind, in reality it's because we're spending less time reflecting on the cross. And that's what Peter is driving us back to right here. By dying to our flesh is how we live as faithful exiles, he's saying, for the will of God, which is being conformed to his son. What's God's will? For you to be conformed to his son. For you to become more like Jesus. And he says that in in verse 2. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time, the rest of your time here on earth, in the flesh, in the flesh just means as a human being right there, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, let's be clear. Living for the will of God is not simply, and you guys have got to hear me in this, all right? Living for the will of God is not simply making better decisions. It's not. It's not simply making better decisions. If we define Christians as people who merely make better decisions than other people, then I've been a real bad preacher, or you've been putting earbuds in at the start of every sermon every Sunday. One of those things are happening. It's probably the former. Living out the will of God is progressively the act of dying to human passions that once ruled your heart, that you were enslaved to, and living for Christ who killed those passions at Calvary on the cross. And there's a lot to love in that verse. It sounds so sharp because I yell it. I scream it out at you. But there's a lot to love in that verse. Don't read that as cold. Don't read that as thinking God is someone who just wants to whip you into shape because he's so tired of you not getting your act together. Because that would mean that you just need to make a better decision to placate him. But that pushes against the idea that Christ died for you because he loved you and because he gave you grace. The fact that Christ suffered as a man so that you could live the rest of your life for the will of God. It proves God's ulterior motives in your life, which are his glory, first and foremost, and your joy, which is significant. Do you you follow that progression when you look at your lives and you see the things, kind of like what Ron was just laying out for us, when you see the changes and some of the struggles and some of the trials that God has taken you through, do you see that progression, this dying to sin and living to righteousness, the way God has taken you through things, the way he has softened those edges of your life by softening your heart so that you can give God glory as having conquered the sin in death that he is calling you to conquer? What God's doing is he's giving you a reflection of an internal reality that's happened in your life, which is to know joy and to know contentment. And that's what Peter is driving at here. So if Christ's death is what allows us to die to passions that we're going to see here end in judgment, what does that say about God's intention for your life? Because we misread God. We misread God. But what does all this say about God's intention for your life? That he's mean? That he's a big meanie up there? That he gets pleasure in seeing you suffer through these things, or or that he's calling us to a life of joy that will only be understood and experienced, all right, as we know his son, as we cease from sin, because that is all that his son has saved us from, is that sin. So this is the call of God. This is the call of God for all those he saves. And with that call, 
comes a cost. And you know why there comes a cost to the call? Because it did for Jesus. That's why. Let's, let's read further here on verse 3. Let's pick up. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I, I mean, I don't know, Peter, did you miss something right there? I don't think he did. Uh, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you or they slander you is what he's saying. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're going to stop right there. And if we go into Colossians 3, we would read something similar from Paul where he says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here's Peter's instruction. This is what he is saying when we dive into verse 3. He's saying, don't look back with fondness on your former life, doing what unbelievers want to do living out the desires of what unbelievers still live out in their lives, a lifestyle of which you once were very familiar with. And then he lays out a list of fairly explanatory things that uh, he describes as a flood of debauchery. Like, I have not described anything uh, with that language like maybe forever in my whole life. I've never said, like, that's a flood of debauchery. You know, but that's, that's the language he uses, which sounds, you know, not super awesome. You know, if we're going to be honest with each other. So, you know, like, I, you guys know I came from California where there's, there's no basements, okay, because uh, we had earthquakes, and um, the last thing you'd want to do in an earthquake is run for the basement. Um, I mean, even the most unintelligent person in California would not ever think doing that was a great idea uh, as their house was rattling apart. All right, so that's how it's laid out there. So, uh, interestingly enough, after I moved to Ohio, uh, all these like rooms under the house, right? They're called basements, and uh, there was this one night when I started hearing all kinds of like weird, like sloshing sounds down in the in the basement, and it was in the middle of winter. So I, I ran, <laughs> I ran downstairs, and I was like, "Babe, look! You know, the house came with a pool downstairs. Like, what? What is this?" Like, nobody ever, they didn't bring me down here when we were looking at the house. This is awesome. Of course, it wasn't awesome. It wasn't a pool. It was a flood. Um, and floods aren't good, right? <laughs> Just trying to keep it real basic today, kiddos. Floods are not good. They immerse everything, right? They immerse everything, and they immerse everything that we had down there. Peter says, your unbelieving friends are immersed in debauchery, right? And worse still, they're going to be shocked when you don't join them in that debauchery, which is a word, again, that sounds like the title of a Netflix series you probably shouldn't be watching right now. But it recalls the time, really, when we look at this, it recalls the time of Noah, where Peter in his, in his second letter says, God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we see this, we see this described where flood is being immersed in something. It's, it's a judgment. It's something that is going to bring upon God's wrath. Peter says, don't be swept back into that. Don't be swept back into the flood of your ungodly past. But, he says, interestingly enough, expect slander from those who have not been delivered from the flood. 
who have not been delivered from their human passions. So he says, let the past go, but he says, you're probably going to suffer slander because these are people who have not been delivered and redeemed from the passions that rule their life. Romans 1.21 says, for although they knew God, talking about unbelievers, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So one of the characteristics of, ungod- of the ungodly life is not being thankful. He says this about them, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So if something's dark, it means that you can't see the light. So for an unbeliever, un- they're still living the licentious life that you've been saved from. And the problem is that they're going to lack any kind of category for your choice to abstain from those passions that they freely and consistently indulge in. Peter says, expect to be ridiculed for righteousness. Expect to be slandered and maligned. But remember, but remember that they will give an account to the Lord who will hold them responsible and judge them according to their unrighteous deeds. And, and by the way, Peter isn't saying that this should cause you any sort of glee. But really what he's saying is, look at the gravity of this. He doesn't say, you know, man, it's okay. It's okay to go on a rampage of judgment against those maligning you. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, you know, who cares, man? Because they're just going to get what they deserve for slamming me. No, he's saying, listen, God judges both the living and the dead. So remember that nothing escapes God before or after death. So there's nothing that is going to escape the eyes and the judgment of God. And remember, God judged the unrighteous in Noah's day, didn't he? Because of that, we also know that he'll judge the unrighteous in our day. So when Peter talks about giving an account here, I mean, that that sounds sobering, doesn't it? To give an account of their unrighteous deeds. I mean, imagine doing you know, your taxes at the end of your life, but instead of tallying up what you made and spent, you're tallying up your sins. It's kind of like that. But thankfully, and this is what Peter's reminding us of, thankfully we're not the ones who receive that account from anybody. That's, that's in God's purview. So you don't have to bear the burden of vengeance or vindication or retaliation. God will reckon with them like he did with you. And maybe someday they'll experience God's grace like you did because you are not on a rampage of condemnation and judgment and casting that upon them, but you're allowing your trust in the Lord knowing that he will take care of them in the way that he decides to take care of them. And we can apply Paul's letter to the Colossians to this when he wrote, he said this, and you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, so when you look back at people that are engaged in a lifestyle that's so easy for you to condemn as they're maligning you. I like that. I'm going to start using that word all the time now. As they're maligning you. Um, you can remember that this is where you came from. This was your life. But he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we remember where we came and we remember the effect of the cross and how that changed us and saved us us. And of course, they would have also found comfort from the words of Jesus when he said from Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. He said, rejoice and be glad. Why? 
Why would I rejoice and be glad because some dude is slamming me for not joining him in his flood of debauchery? Well, because he said, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a long line of God's people who suffer persecution for deciding to follow the pathway of righteousness. So this is why we regard human passions as our former life. Because we have a reward in heaven that's greater, listen, greater than the persecution that we'll experience from those who have no reward. So that's part of the cost of the call. But we also see here as we get into verse 6, comfort comes to those who have received the gospel. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter is saying here, remember the reason why the gospel was preached. Remember, so that death would not have the final word. So that death would not be the final chapter in your life. It's true, yes, we all die physically. That's the curse that we still live under today because of Adam and Eve. But Christ reversed that curse of death on the cross. But until he returns, the death rate is one per person. We all die physically. I mean, unless you live in Ohio, and then it just seems like everyone lives forever. And I'm not going to lie to you about that. But it's coming. But the gospel is preached to all who have died physically so that after death, they might have life with God in the spirit, in the spiritual realm. They might enjoy a life forever with the living God. And let me just say this, Christianity, brothers and sisters, makes no sense without this last verse. It makes no sense. Everything that Peter just laid out, we just took this chunk in chapter 4, it makes no sense without this last verse. The call and cost of conforming to Christ without future life with God ends up being like a horror movie, right? Martin Luther tried to do that when he became a monk back in the 1500s, believing that the way to righteousness was through punishing yourself by making better decisions, by living a better life, abstaining from everything, by beating your body into painful submission. You know what the problem was with that? Like it didn't make anything better for our boy Martin. Nothing was better for him because he still lived with the shame and the guilt that ongoing sin has in our life when the gospel has not dealt with it. Christianity is crazy without the gospel. And, and frankly, I don't want any part of it. And frankly, it's not really Christianity if it's not the gospel. But listen, sometimes we believe that our end game, our end game is supposed to be a better life here on earth, don't we? We just went through an election which showed the church is still confused about that. Over and over, Peter is reminding his people to not be short-sighted. Let's follow that. Let's follow that aim from Peter. Let's not be short-sighted. Have eternity, have life with God in view which must be your comfort 
or you have none. Because the message of the gospel says you may not have a better life the way the world has a better life, but they're going to answer for what they decided was better. Do you want to answer for what you decided was better? All will give an account, whether you swim in a flood of debauchery or you wade in a pool of morality and good intentions. All will give an account to the Lord. Gosh, that's so sharp. That's so sharp. C.S. Lewis made this comment. He made a very hopeful comment as we think about these things. He made a very hopeful comment about those who have had the gospel preached to them that are arming themselves with the same thinking of Christ, who are ceasing from sin, who are experiencing that sanctification process by living out their faith, gutting out their faith at times. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Last Battle, for those of you guys who are familiar with the, the Narnia Chronicles, he talked about really what the outcome is for those who receive the gospel. And he said, chapter 1, it's like chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You know, Peter's describing here at the very end of verse 6, is he's describing life with God as chapter 1 in our lives. We are leading into chapter 1 in our lives. And this is, this is hope. You know, you need hope, don't you? Who needs hope? I don't need hope for a better future. I need hope for an ultimate future. The Bible gives us hope for an ultimate future, and it's untarnished, right? It's not a hope that has any scratches on it. It actually is a hope that is pierced through by nails and blood. But that's the untarnished hope because it's the finished work. It's a finished hope for those who arm themselves with the mind of Christ and break away from the, just the corruptive hold of their sins. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us for the love of Christ now controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him, for their sake died and was raised. Is there a cost to this life? Yes. There is a cost for the Christian life. And it was paid by the love of Christ. You know what this means? This means our lives are now controlled and motivated by Christ's love. And it's the love of Christ that gives everything hope and gives everything worth. Future hope is what makes present hardship worth it. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of missionary Jim Elliot, who died uh, as they were um, just doing some really, really deep missionary work back in the 50s, she said this her, as, after her husband died. She said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in different set of circumstances. 
And that holds true for us. And what this does is for us is it brings a sense of urgency to our lives, doesn't it? Urgency for what? Well, that as an exile and a sojourner, your hope remains fixed on the only immovable and immutable, non-changing person there is. And for the Christian, your past life, listen, that was your brush with death. Your past life was your brush with death. Have you ever had a brush with death? Has anybody ever had a, just a weird moment where you, it, it could have happened, you, you saw the reflection of it as you walked away from it? Melissa and I were driving down a, just a real dark road the other night, with, you know, I mean, because all roads are dark in Ohio, um, and, a, and a deer literally ju- you know, jumped in front of us, and just sort of as we were going, I don't know, 55, you know, as, we, as, as a deer jumped in front of us, and we just missed it by inches, right? I mean, I mean, literally, just like, I didn't even have time to slow down. Like, like that dude just literally missed the car by inches, and I, I know I just described grocery shopping for you hunters out there. Um, <laughs> but for the Christian, it's our past life that will have proved to be our only brush with death because of Christ's death. And so conformity to Christ, who did die for us, happens through knowing Him, through learning about Him, and through loving His Word, while remembering, man, I had a brush with death. So the reason we endure suffering, the reason we don't look at this in despair, the reason we endure suffering is because we have the assurance that present and future life with God is true. And we know it's true because it was true for Jesus. And our lives are now being conformed to Him as we cease from human passions with the hope of life eternal with God ever in view. Let's pray. God, thank you for the kindness and the grace that you have given all of us who know you now, who came from the death that was imminent in their lives. What a thing for us to bow before you this morning and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the death of Christ. And thank you that the death of Christ wasn't just so that we could have life for you after this life, but it's so we could actually cease from sin and experience abundant life before we die and spend eternity with you. Thank you that your life is so all-encompassing. Lord, help us as we struggle to break away from sin and to break away from a past life of which we will experience slander and suffering. Lord, thank you that you have provided us a model in not just a manual, but in a person, which is Jesus Christ. And we know that everything that you call us to in your word is for your glory and for our joy. And we can commit ourselves to the truth of that even when we find ourselves in our darkest hour. Lord, may we ever hope in you. May we ever walk alongside of those who are suffering today in our church family. May we be controlled by the love of Christ as we have eyes that even move beyond our own suffering and our own pain 
to look and see how others might need to be encouraged today. So Lord, we pray for that heart. We thank you for the future hope and glory that the cross has given us to spend life and eternity with you. Conform us today even deeper to the image of your Son, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.